North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Hey guys, Dr. Noel here. So if you heard the beginning of the show um, live, you'll know that the audio quality wasn't very good. So I just went ahead and re-recorded the intro, and then you will hear the show as it was originally recorded. Enjoy. Hello, hello. You tuned in to Dr. Low Radio, where you hear the very best in natural medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, and it's an honor to bring you the show. We're discussing a very hot topic tonight, and I will make sure to keep the intro short and sweet so we can get to all your questions, both live calls and Facebook. But first, I want you to mark your calendars for next week's show. Next week's show will be actually on Monday, August 1st. The show is typically on Tuesday, but next week will be on Monday night. We needed to accommodate the uh, guest schedule. The condition that we'll be discussing next week is so common that it's the number one cause of death in our country, and that's heart disease. We're going to be speaking with one of the nation's leading naturopathic cardiologists, Dr. Martin Milner. He has a specialty in cardiology and pulmonary medicine. So we'll be discussing just how powerful naturopathic medicine is in preventing and treating heart disease. So tune in. That'll be next Monday night. Are there past shows of Dr. Low Radio that you'd like to hear? We have some great topics in the archive section like cancer, diabetes, liver disease, depression, sex and fertility, you name it, we've talked about it. So to hear any of the archive shows, go ahead and visit drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L.com. And you can check out all the archive shows. They're free and ready to download at any time. Great topics coming up in the next several weeks. Um, Natural approaches to sports medicine, natural medicine for babies and children. We'll be talking about autism, ADHD, and a lot more. So keep your eyes peeled for future shows. As usual, we will be taking your calls tonight for live questions. That'll be 818-495-6919 if you'd like to call in, 818-495-6919. I have collected probably 15, 20 Facebook questions, um, but if you'd like to submit a question, I will do my best to get it on the air. So the uh, Facebook is uh, facebook.com slash Noel. That's D-R-L-O-N-O-E-L. And on Twitter, I am Dr. Lauren Noel. So D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L. We are discussing a very, very controversial topic tonight. It's something that people are very resistant to opening their minds about. Um, in our country, we're very much inundated with the belief that vaccinations are mandatory. You have to be vaccinated and there's really no other way about it. We have a guest tonight who is a trailblazer in this area. She has really challenged the um, predominant belief and she has done thousands of hours of research in this arena and she really deserves our attention because she's done the work. So um, I'm really honored to have her on the show. Tonight we have Dr. Sherry Tenpenny on the show. She is respected as one of the country's most knowledgeable and outspoken physicians regarding the impact of vaccines on health. She's a board-certified osteopathic medical doctor from Cleveland, Ohio. She's the founder of Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center, a clinic that specializes in holistic health and healing, including breast thermography, allergy relief, and bioidentical hormones. Dr. Tenpenny is an internationally known expert on the problems associated with vaccines. She has produced many educational DVDs and is the author of two books, including Fowl, which makes the connection between bird flu and environmental pollution, 
as well as saying no to vaccines, a guide written to help adults and parents refute the most common reasons to vaccinate. Dr. Tenpenny is an outspoken advocate for free choice in healthcare, including the rights to refuse vaccination. She has done hundreds of TV and radio interviews and it's her very first appearance here on Dr. Low Radio. To learn more about Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, visit her website, drtenpenny.com. That's D-R-T-E-N-P-E-N-N-Y.com. So here's the show. So Dr. Tenpenny, thanks for being on the show. Um, it's an honor to have you. So can you tell me a little bit about you and kind of what your journey's been like to have the, uh, you know, the specialty that you have now? My background started out as a board-certified emergency medicine doctor that I was the director of an emergency department for 12 years in Findlay, Ohio, which is on the west side of the state. It was a fairly busy ER. We saw about 40,000 visits a year, so it was a big place. In 1994, my business partner died of cancer at the age of 32, and when Dave died, I knew it was important for me to get back to my osteopathic roots because I had come from three generations of chiropractors and I had wanted that uh, manipulation tool in my toolbox. So I moved to Cleveland in 1996, and I started an integrative medicine practice here, which now we have uh, 15, I believe, employees, full and part-time. And I'm proud to say that people have come to my clinic in Cleveland from 39 states and 11 foreign countries to get well and get off their drugs. In September of 2000, I went to the National Vaccine Information Center meeting in Washington, D.C., I'm not exactly sure why I went to that meeting. It just was a brochure that I couldn't seem to throw away off my kitchen counter. And when I went there, I sat through four days of listening to people talk about the problems associated with vaccination, and I thought, how in the world did I miss this? I had been in the practice of medicine since 1985. I've been in integrative medicine since 1996, and now it's September of 2000, and it's something that I really need to look into. I started with the general recommendation of vaccinations, which was the 1998 version of that paper. It was a 42-page paper that I looked at and said, wow, this is really poorly written, and this surely, surely cannot be what an entire multi-billion dollar industry has, has, uh, built its back, has, built, has been built around. So from that point in September 2000, I've now spent, oh, I don't know, uh, I, I spend uh, more than a thousand hours a year. It's been probably twelve thousand hours at least because I spend anywhere from two to eight hours a day and on weekends sometimes eighteen and twenty four hours and I've spent entire weekends weeks of, of vacation time just pouring through problems uh, through vaccination material and determined that what we've been told about vaccination is an absolute bill of goods. Vaccines are not safe, they don't protect you and they are not harmless because they certainly can cause harm. During that time, I've written two books. I've contributed to about four more books, and i put out six um, DVDs on vaccine education. I have a very big presence on Facebook. That's probably where you found me. I've got 26,000 fans on my Facebook page, and it grows all the time. And we have an amazing conversation there about educating people about the problems associated with vaccination. And once people learn what is in the vaccines and what they can do to stay healthy and that health does not come through a needle, very rarely do people say, oh, gosh, I've looked at this and I've decided to continue to vaccinate. So now here we are in July of 2011, and I continue to put out this information because there's more people learning about it all the time. And I know it can be a very scary place for new parents when they're just trying to figure out what to do. And we try to make our vaccine page a, on Facebook a very safe place for, for discussions about um, problems associated with vaccines. Wow, what a fulfilling job to have. It's just, you know, 
you sound very passionate about what you do. I mean, obviously you have to be passionate about what you do to spend two to eight hours per day studying this. So obviously you're passionate, yeah, right? Yeah, I do. I, I do. It really is a passion. And, and really it is like the most important thing that I that I do uh, in terms of of protecting the next generation of children. And, and I am really passionate about it because I, I've learned. It, it took me a while. I mean, I'm a board-certified medical doctor. I was the director of an ER and was board-certified in two medical specialties. And I realized that what we were taught in medical school was absolutely incorrect and that what we were doing to these children in terms of creating pervasive disease and lifetimes of injury, that making them customers for life of the pharmaceutical industry is not what we are supposed to be doing. Right, right. You know, I have I have some of my questions that I'm going to ask, but I'm going to really just let this be audience-driven. I have a lot of Facebook questions, and then obviously we'll be taking live calls as well. So for those who want to call in, I don't know if you heard the number. It's 818 495 6919. So I'm just going to jump in with um, just kind of the biggest questions that are asked regarding vaccination. So first off, vaccines and autism, what's your take on it? There's no doubt that vaccines can cause autism. I mean, we know of at least 86 cases that the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program through the Vaccine Court has awarded damages to families for, for vaccines causing autism. We know that there, the Hannah Poling case that was publicized all over the news, we know that. But here's my big take about vaccines and autism, is that autism is just the far end of the spectrum. It's the worst case scenario or one of the worst case scenarios. And that there's an entire continuum of vaccine injury that people don't necessarily recognize as vaccine injury, but is certainly report, uh, supported by the medical literature. Things like asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, all kinds of brain inflammation that goes on, a very long list of neurological complications, cancer, insulin-dependent diabetes, elevated C-reactive protein, and, and, and uh, all kinds of inflammatory problems that, that are involved in, in vaccination have all been documented in the medical literature. So even though parents are very concerned, and rightfully so, about the potential of vaccinate, about vaccines causing autism, it's just the far end of the spectrum, which then goes to the next point that parents are very concerned about trying to identify thimerosal-free vaccines or mercury-free vaccines. And it's very important that we've taken the mercury out. I mean, so it's a travesty that our, the U.S. government and the people that they've hired to develop vaccines never did the simple math to find out how much mercury these children were actually getting in their um, rounds of vaccines when they were two, four, and six months of age. And the truth is, is that mercury has been taken out of the vast majority of vaccines, even though it is still in multi-dose flu shots. And so it's very important that parents have gotten their head around the fact that we, I want to get a mercury-free vaccine. I don't want mercury injected into my child. But taking one toxic ingredient out of an entire bucket full of toxic ingredients does make it somewhat safer, but it certainly doesn't lend itself to being safe. So it's, it's used as a, as a preservative, right? So what, what do they use in place of the mercury? They put it, it's been used as a, as a preservative, and it's supposed, it was supposed to be an astringent, meaning that as these vaccines are made using animal cells, and human cells and bovine serum is injected in them and avian serum is there and now they're using cells from dog kidney cells and they've used monkey cells and 
some of the new line flu shots that are coming on board are using insect cells. I mean, these are just disgusting things that come in a vial. And they, all of those disgusting things come with stray viruses. And so part of the reason to put the thimerosal or the mercury into the vaccine was to kill off those stray viruses, even though we've known since the 1930s it did not do a very good job of doing that. So it was used as a preservative, meaning that if you, if you had a syringe or a vial, a vial of a vaccination and that you, put in, in that you repeatedly put a, a needle in there to pull out some of the solution, like a multi-dose uh, a vial, um, that it would be contaminated with some viruses or bacteria that would be coming through the stopper. So the concept was that the thimerosal or the mercury would kill off the viruses or bacteria that would inadvertently um, end up in the vial. Well, we've known it doesn't do a very good job. And we also know that globally they are passing legislation to take mercury out of factory emissions and to take it out of, um, out of the water. And the EPA keeps a very close track of the amount of mercury in fish. And it seems to be that the only place that we consider mercury to be safe is if it's in a vaccine injected into, into our bodies or if it is um, in fillings that get put into our mouths. That seems to be perfectly safe and perfectly okay. But anywhere else in the world, it's toxic and, and horrible, and we have to do away with it. Right. doesn't make any sense. Um, let's talk about flu shot. I know you probably get that asked all the time. So what's your take on the flu shot? I don't recommend it to my patients, but I'm just curious your take. And, uh, yeah, just anything you want to mention about the flu shot. Well, we're coming into what I what is always referred to as flu shot season, which means that in the mm -hmm. American Academy of Pediatrics has already released flu shots this year going into the flu season. And we, we try to give the kids flu shots before they go back to school. And, and then, you know, CVS and Wal, Walgreens and all these places give them away for free like they were something really good for you, like a B12 shot. Come get your flu shot. Right. It will keep you healthy. Well, the truth of the matter is that the flu shots are, 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 are really filthy things. They have three viruses in them. They are made from chicken cells. They have stray avian viruses, and I just posted an article yesterday about the connection between the stray avian viruses found in flu shots and the potential for breast cancer because there is a link there. Um, the multi-dose flu shots have mercury in them. The flu mist that goes up your nose has, MS, has large amounts of MSG and that can go directly through your olfactory nerve, right directly into your brain and cause brain inflammation. The thing is, is that we have shown in international studies when they have reviewed all of the medical literature that has ever been written about flu shots, and they divide it into age groups, meaning children, infants and children, middle-aged adults, and senior citizens. And what the Cochrane Collaboration has found in all three of those age groups is that the flu shot is no more effective to keeping you from getting the flu than if they gave you a sugar pill. In any given flu season, um, in order for the flu shot to work, the three viruses that are given to you are injected into your body through that shot to create an antibody against the viruses that are out there in circulation that could cause the flu. Well, I did a very extensive analysis of the CDC's data about flu shots, and, and what I found was that of all of the samples, and there's hundreds of thousands of samples every year of people that go to the doctor that they have they have symptoms of the flu, and the doctor takes a nasal swab and a throat swab and sends it to the CDC for analysis. And out of uh, last year, out of more than a million swabs, only 11% of those swabs 
had viruses in those swabs that would have been matched by the viruses in the flu shot. So if flu shots work at all, they're only going to work 11% of the time. I think you could do better to keeping from getting the flu by increasing your, your vitamin D level, taking out white sugar and white flour, and washing your hands. My two-hour DVD on the flu and the flu shots is meant to be an evergreen DVD, which means that the information that's in there will stay the same year after year after year. And I've had lots of people who have taken that DVD and taken it to the school, taken it to their PTA meeting, taken it to their hospital. They've had sh showings of that DVD at their local library to show people why the flu shot can definitely cause you more harm than good, and it will definitely not keep you from getting sick. I highly recommend uh, your DVDs to my listeners. I was watching your DVD uh, today and yesterday on uh, the risks, the choices, and the benefits, I believe it's called. Um, just Risk great. So much information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great. I really recommend everyone to listen to it, um, whether you're a doctor or just wanting to know information about, you know, for your children, vaccinating your children. It's just a really great resource. And a lot of people don't like to read, so it's nice to be able to watch it. <laughs> So that's always a plus. Yeah, the, 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 the risk-benefit choices DVD that you were talking about was a three-hour DVD that we put together. And I've actually had people go through every single slide because every single slide is footnoted and referenced with a, uh, a, a, a reference from either the CDC or the conventional medical literature. And what they've, I've had people take those, CD, those uh, references and look them up because they wanted to see whether or not I was taking something out of context. And people got back to me and said, you know what, you said it exactly the way that they say it in the CDC and the medical literature. Everything you said is absolutely accurate and truthful, and it's not taken out of context at all. And that's so important because you hear it so commonly that, oh, if someone's against vaccines, it's a very biased way that they're looking at it and they're not looking at the research. It's not, you know, substantiated in the research. So that's really important that you have that, you know, all those footnotes. It's like, no, I'm actually looking these up. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really, really interesting because my book, my Saying No to Vaccines book, has 350 references from the medical literature, and there's more that's coming along all the time. And it's so interesting that so many of the very um, militant pro-vaccine people will say, all of those people just make that up. They don't know what they're talking about. There's no research. There's nothing to document it, and it's an absolute lie. There is lots of information to back it up. It's just a, it's just a way for them to, to try to negate the information rather than bothering to look at it themselves. I'm going to take a caller here from the 508. Caller, are you there? I'm here. Great. What's your name and where are you calling from? Lisa. I'm calling from Massachusetts. Hey, Lisa. Great to have your call. Hi, What's your question for Dr. Tenpenny? I stopped vaccinating my 5- and 10-year-old sons two years ago. My youngest does show signs of a skewed immune system. When he was a year, he had a string of ear infections. When he was two, he developed a food allergy and food intolerances. And most recently, he developed a dust mite and pollen allergy. I'm concerned that he could go on to develop asthma or some kind of autoimmune disease, so I've been trying to boost his immune system by doing things like taking him to chicken pox parties. If he has a fever, I let it run its course. He consumes kefir and kefir grains. Is there anything else I can do to reverse the damage that's been done by the vaccinations? That's a great question, and, and I'm glad you asked that because it comes up a lot. And yes, there are. I mean, everything that you already said that you're doing is I, I would really advocate. I think that's really that's really great. 
Um, I think that there are things that you can do in terms of making sure his vitamin D level is, is at least 70 in his age group, and you have to do that by a blood test, and that you can give he's him... He's not. I think he's... Drugs. I think he's at 35. Yeah, and see, that's in the normal range, but it's not in the optimal ideal range. And the medical literature says that the, that the um, vitamin D level needs to be between 70 and 80 for it to be absolutely optimal. You may, excuse me, you may want to try to find somebody that does something called NAET, and if that stands for Nambujapaz Allergy Elimination Technique. We do a, a version of that in our office called Tenpenny SRT, and we found that to be absolutely magical. For um, It's a non-invasive technique that uses muscle testing and acupressure, and it really does wonderful things for eliminating food allergies and environmental sensitivities and helps to rebalance those um, energetic systems that have been disrupted by the vaccines. You can use some homeopathy if you've got a, a, a good homeopath that you're working with. Frequently, they can stop those resonant energy problems that have stopped, that have been going on with the vaccines. I don't think at this point in time it's worth probably looking at mercury or heavy metal issues. Um, making sure that you build up his gut, making sure that he's got lots of uh, good probiotics, and, um, and, and at those age groups you can find some good chewable digestive enzymes for kids in that age group. And I think that those sorts of things working are, are really key, all of those together, for getting both of your children to be really healthy. Great. And do they do the NAET with children that young? The youngest we've treated in our office is six weeks. <laughs> and oh, so my goodness. The answer, is, the, the answer is definitely yes. This, they, we've treated a lot of children that were two, three, four months of age that reacted to hepatitis B vaccines that had a lot of GERD and reflux, and right on the package insert from the hepatitis B vaccine, it talks about um, GERD and reflux and, and reflux disease. And the, these children were really miserable, and we treat, they only had a few treatments they needed to do, and they couldn't nurse because they were reacting to, the, to mother's mouth. And so, so that's a very long-winded way of saying, yeah, we've treated kids as young as six weeks and gotten them a lot better. Great. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. Your Thanks for the question. Dr. Tenpenny, what's your take on uh, the viral meningitis vaccine for college kids? Well, that's a bacterial meningitis vaccine. It's the one that's Menactra and um, Menimmune are the two versions of that vaccine. Um, I've, you know, um, Neisseria meningitis, the bacteria that causes meningitis, is a terrible infection. It, and if you get it, you most people tend to have a, a bad outcome from it, but it's extraordinarily rare. I mean, back in the time when I was a, a um, an emergency medicine doctor, we used to see one case of that every several years. And, and it's a random event. It doesn't happen with regularity. It doesn't spread readily from person to person like chickenpox or measles or the flu. It's very, It's not very contagious. And I know that one of the statistics for the state of Texas, I mean, I believe that the, the state of Texas has a population of something like 24 million people, and on any given year there are two to three cases. So that just tells you that it's very um, very rare to get it. The, the meningitis vaccine has a black box warning on it to warn against something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an inflammatory disease of the nerves in your body that can cause paralysis. And it's particularly devastating or potentially 
the potential for it to be particularly devastating when it's given with the Gardasil vaccine. And that the one back, uh, the metamune vaccine has, I believe it has latex in the stopper, and that can cause another whole set of problems. The antibodies only last for a couple of years. And it's my personal opinion is that, like with all vaccines, health does not come through a needle, and that you need to be healthy from the inside out, and that the meningitis vaccine is really kind of like trying to vaccinate against a stray bullet. Can stray bullets come on on college campuses? Absolutely. We know about all kinds of stray bullets, things that happen, like Virginia Tech and things like that. But we wouldn't issue a flak jacket and a helmet to every student at every age group in every college campus all across the country because some crazy person might come on a campus with a gun. Well, that's kind of what we're doing with mandating this meningitis vaccine. We are injecting it injecting a substance into people that could definitely cause them harm, could even kill them, and the outside effect of that a stray bullet might happen to them. I love that. Health does not come through a needle. It's so true. It's so true. And yet it's so it's mandated. I mean, it. Yeah, and we would, I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine if the, if, the, if the kids now were going to college and because of these terrible, terrible events that we had on campus, like Virginia Tech and places like that, if they had to go in and, and in order for them to be enrolled in college classes, they had to be fitted for a flat jacket and they had to wear helmets to class every day. Right. Because there's this random event, outside event, that just might happen that we have to guard against. That's the same analogy of what we're doing with meningitis vaccines. Yep. Oh, it's just nuts. I'm going to go to some Facebook questions because I have about 20 of them. So I'm going to just try to run okay. through them real quick. Um, and uh-huh. I'm sure some of them I've already asked. Okay, so this is a question from um, Mike from Scotland, and he wants to know, please ask if it's wise to take vaccines for traveling in South and Central America, and if so, which ones? None of the vaccines are better. Um, well, let me rephrase that. There is only one vaccine that is that is a required vaccine for travel, and that is the yellow fever vaccine, and only in certain countries, not in every country of the world. There are countries like if you're going into the deep Amazon, in some places in Brazil, they will require it. If you're going to the Central African, Black African Congo, they require the yellow fever vaccine. But other than that, all vaccines are only recommended. They are not required. And I don't advocate vaccines for any travel. In fact, I can say from my own personal experience that I've been blessed in my personal life to have been, to have had the ability over the course of of many years to travel to 57 different countries. I've never had a travel vaccine, nor would I ever. And if there was a country that required me to have a travel vaccine to go to that country, I simply wouldn't go. Um, I, they're, they're, it's, health doesn't come through a needle. And most countries where people go, if you've not done much traveling outside the country, you don't realize that most places around the world are not a whole lot different than just like going to Florida or Washington State or someplace that's, you know, in maybe the southern part of Arizona or New Mexico. I mean, third world country, unless you're going to some inner deep third world country that's way out of the norm of, of what normal travel would be, you're going to find that most countries in the world don't, I mean, they look different, but their sanitation conditions are not a whole lot different than what they are in the U.S. And if you go to the travel section on the CDC's website and you look at what their recommendations are for health, (coughs) excuse me, 
in terms of wash your hands, you know, don't drink the water, um, try to cook all your food. I mean, some basic things, basic mosquito protections for malaria. You will find that that if they can, if those things are useful for what for infections for which we have no vaccines, they are going to apply for infections for which we do have vaccines. Hmm. Got it. For those of you who just tuned in, we're t talking to Dr. Sherry Tenpenny on vaccinations. My phone lines are open, so if you'd like to call and ask a question, you can call in 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919. There's a lot of people on the switchboard, so if you want to ask a question, just press 1. Um, here's a question from Roxana. She's in, or, yeah, excuse me, Roxy. She's in California, and she wants to know, are vaccines mandatory by law, or can I oppose? My son is going to middle school right now, and Kaiser pretty much forced me to have him get his TB shot, and now the whooping cough one as well. I was told he cannot start school, or he won't be accepted unless he has these shots. What are our rights? And my daughter is three, and I don't want any more shots either. Um, there are every state has exemptions, and that's what this question is about. And it's always it's always comes up, and it's a very good question. So I'm glad that whoever posed that question put it out there pretty early on in this conversation. That uh, every state has exemptions, which means that you have a right to refuse. There are 19 states that have what's called a philosophical exemption, which means you've looked at the risk of the infection versus the risk of the disease, and you've decided that you don't want your children to have any of the vaccines or you don't want them to have any more vaccines. And so you can declare an exemption. All of the schools, all of the states that have a philosophical exemption, and I'll give you a website for that in just a minute where you can go and look at your state, all of those states, um, in each of the states and each of the school districts, the rules may be a little bit different, meaning that some schools may want you to fill out an exemption form every year. Some schools may want you to do it just K through 6, middle school and high school. Some schools, if you do it in the first year, it's good all the way through K through 12. Some schools want both parents to sign it. Some schools want it notarized. So there may be some individual and, um, things in your individual school district that you need to know about. But if you have a philosophical right to refuse, all you need to do is submit, is ask the school nurse for a form because they will not offer it to you because schools want to have completed vaccination records. So you need to ask for it. If they won't give it to you, then you can go to the state law uh, site and, and create one on your own. Now, 19 states have philosophical exemptions. Every state except West Virginia and Mississippi have something that's called a religious exemption. And those can be a little bit more difficult. And they are, they, they, depending on your state, some of them may be more like an, an easier religious exemption and some are more difficult. And so it depends on your state law. In, in Mississippi and West Virginia, you only have access to a medical exemption. It's very hard to get. It's very hard to implement, and it's a um, it's quite a travesty, in my opinion, for those two states. Now, to find out what your state law is, if you go to this website, if you go to nvic.org, which is Nancy Victor Iris Charlie, nvic.org, and right on the home page, there's a button that says State Laws, and if you click on that, a window will drop down that will show you the map of the United States. And you can click on your state, and it will tell you exactly what your laws are. I know that right now I just did a radio interview this morning in the state of Louisiana that they have that this news media has been putting out this entire thing saying no shots, no school, or it's no shots, no school, that's the law. 
And it happens to be that in the state of Louisiana, they do have a philosophical exemption, and it's fairly clearly written in their law. And unless your state officials can show where they have repealed or changed that law, which to my knowledge they have not, you can print out a copy of that state law and take it to your school and say, right here in print is where my right is to refuse. They are coming after all the states in a very big way. Last year, Washington State, the laws were changed, so now that you have to get a, a doctor's note to refuse, even though previously in the state of Wisconsin, in the state of Mass, um, I'm sorry, the state of Wis, uh, um, Washington, you had a philosophical right to, approve, uh, to refuse. They're trying to do the same thing in Colorado trying to say that take away your right to refuse. It's going to be rolling out across the country. And for every parent that's listening to this, that you would like to have the right to refuse 100% of vaccines or a portion of vaccines or the right in, to pick and choose what vaccines you want injected into your children, you've got to mobilize and get involved. And the way to get involved is to go to nvicadvocacy.org, nvicadvocacy.org. And also to the canaryparty.org. Put your email address in there. You will get alerts about things that are happening in your state so that you can retain your right to refuse. Dr. Tenpenny, I'm curious about something that kind of comes along with that. And that's, let's say every child in America becomes, you know, let's say all the new children who are born don't become vaccinated. Um, I'm, I'm curious about if you could explain to the audience the concept of herd immunity and when this could be a concern in your opinion. Herd immunity was never meant to be uh, applied to vaccination rates. Um, herd immunity was all about if you had a, uh, a population that had an infection, like chickenpox or measles or, or, or mumps or, or um, those sorts of things. In fact, herd immunity came out of the 1930s when there was a population study that was done in the state of Massachusetts that a very um, observant physician looked at a, a, a multi-county area and said that it appears as though it when, 60%, when at least 60 to 67% of a population in these, in these counties has the measles, that it appears as though the rest of the herd is protected. And when the, when the, um, the infection rate falls below 67%, it appears as though we have another outbreak of measles that sort of boosts that, that rate, that, that level up. The pharmaceutical industry has conveniently rolled that over into vaccination rates, saying that we now we need to have a 90 to 95% vaccination rate, and if it falls lower than that, we're going to have massive outbreaks. Well, we know that there's many states across the country that have vaccination rates lower than that, and we have these little pockets of a couple of outbreaks here and there that the CDC becomes hysterical over, and wants to go out and revaccinate everybody. And it's my opinion that we're creating a weaker society by continuing to vaccinate and vaccinate and vaccinate. In fact, I just read a medical article today that was that came out of about 1997 that was talking about the fact that um, um, with children that have high fevers when they're younger tend to have less asthma and, and chronic illnesses as they get older. And I believe that all of many of these childhood illnesses were a right to passage for people that are 50 years of age and older. And I think that a lot of people that have these illnesses were healthier today than what they are, that are healthier than what they are today. Children now get 40 doses of 16 different vaccines by the time they're six years of age. I don't think it takes a medical degree to understand that that's causing a problem. Absolutely. 
And what's so? Can you go ahead and explain like molecular mimicry and what what that can cause in a in a patient who gets numerous vaccinations? Yeah, molecular mimicry is kind of a complex concept. It's about if you inject somebody with, say, I'm just going to make this up, let's an attenuated measles virus, which is means that the measles, mumps, and rubella, the MMR vaccine, those viruses have been weakened by passages through tissues. And sometimes as many as 70 times that virus has been reinfected and re-inoculated into tissue over and over and over again until it becomes weak enough that when they take that virus and they inject it into an animal, it doesn't really ca it causes the production of an antibody, but it doesn't cause the development of the full-blown infection. So if you inject a measles virus into somebody, and it looks in, and it has a it, it goes and attacks the a, a measles virus. But the measles virus has a an amino acid sequence on the side of it, and let's just call it ABC. So that antibody goes and looks for that ABC sequence. And when it doesn't find it because we don't have any measles in our system, then it goes over and it says, oh, there's a pancreas, and that has an amino acid ABC. Or there's a nerve, and that has an amino acid sequence ABC. I think I'll just go and attach to that. Once those antibodies attach to those other types of organs, that's called molecular mimicry, and it can start to break down those organs to where they don't function very well anymore. And they believe that it's that, that process of molecular mimicry that can be contributing to neurological disease with vaccines, to diabetes with vaccines, to cancer with vaccines, to all kinds of neurological problems. So it's a fairly complex um, immunology, but it's a very important one. Yeah, absolutely, and the possible link with autoimmune disease. Yeah. I have, uh, here's this question here from Carissa, and she wants to know, if we decide to vaccinate, what is the safest amount of vaccine given at a time? Which ones can I really skip, and which ones are a good idea to get? I try to space them out as much as I can and wait as long as I can. It's so hard with pediatricians pushing vaccines on you and making you feel pressured to do so. That's a great question, and there's a couple of things in there that need to be addressed. One is a pediatrician is another human being. They are not a God incarnate. That is your child, and it's your right to decide what you want to do with that child. And if the, that pediatrician is also your consultant, you pay them for their opinion. If you don't like their opinion, get another one. It's the same thing as with if, that, if it was an attorney or if it was a CPA or a builder or a general contractor or a hairdresser. If you don't like the way the hairdresser cuts your hair, you go find another beautician. And if you don't like the pediatrician, find a nurse practitioner or a homeopath or a pediatric chiropractor or a naturopath or somebody that's willing to work with you. Pediatricians are necessary for very sick children with autoimmune, with, that, with very, very sick children. And those are subspecialty pediatricians. General pediatricians who are not willing to work with you are not worth your money. And as far as looking at what, what vaccines are safer, I guess I always say that um, arsenic is arsenic. And you can give a little dose of arsenic, but it's still arsenic. And maybe you can get away with a little dose of arsenic over time, but eventually when you give a lot of arsenic, people generally die. And that may sound kind of mean, but after, you know, 12,000 hours and all these thousands of hours that I put into my, my life into educating people about this and the DVDs I put together and the books I put together and I've done all the work for everybody to say it's all right here. You don't have to spend the thousands of hours that I did. You have to spend an hour or two skimming it. Um, 
it leaves very little room, in my opinion, in my opinion, for any vaccine to be safe. And all of them are like Russian roulette, and you never know which is going to be the one that's going to cause the harm. So in your opinion, no vaccine should be given ever? And that may come off sounding extraordinarily radical, but this has been my experience, is that I have seen thousands of parents in the office over the last, well, that's an exaggeration, let's say many hundreds of parents in the, in the office over the last 15 years, that they, tr- they blindly trusted their pediatrician and the government and they gave all these vaccines and their first child had a, just a total disaster health problems from the little guy that I have in the office that was three years of age that the parent that he had asthma and the, and the pediatrician scared him into giving a flu shot and within six hours of getting a flu shot he began to seize and he seized for 40 days. And I've got several children like that, to parents that have autism, that have cancer, that have all kinds of autoimmune diseases, terrible eczema, and and all kinds of issues. And then the parents say, you know what, They, they wake up to the problems associated with vaccines and they go out and they do their research, whether it's with my materials or Mayor Eisenstein's materials or Gary Null or any of the other people who have put out lots of information about the problems associated with vaccines. And then they say... The rest of my kids, I'm not going to vaccinate them. I'm just not. I saw what happened to child number one and child number two, three, and four not getting any of that stuff. And child two, three, and four, for the most part, are pretty darn healthy. Like they barely get sick. They don't have any chronic underlying diseases. And if they do have an underlying disease, it's usually something like a parasite or something else that's going on or a nutritional deficiency that can be fixed. And so I've seen it so many times of child number one is a health disaster no more vaccines and the rest of the kids are healthy. And I don't know if you've talked to Dr. Mayor Eisenstein, but he will tell you unequivocally that home first, when he did all these home deliveries, his business model was, you know, I'm going to have all these home births and then we're going to hire a couple of family practice docs to take care of these families after they, all these children were born. Well, out of 20,000-some kids, almost all of them are unvaccinated. He could not have a sustainable business model off of that. His opinion was, and he would, I know that he would tell you this directly, was that I can't make a living out of a medical practice with just doing annual physicals and occasional cold and flu. These unvaccinated kids are, for the most part, not sick. So that lends itself to saying that the vaccine industry is the underpinning of the entire pharmaceutical industry. And if we took it out and we stopped vaccinating, how much of our health expenses and health care problems would go away? Because we've got all these kids with asthma and allergies and eczema and seizure disorders and all this stuff that they have to take daily chronic medications, frequently two or three medications, that maybe they wouldn't have needed any of those medicines if they didn't have any vaccines to start with. Right. Yep. Nobody asks these questions, though. They just get the vaccination because we're told that we're supposed to. And it's far past time in this country, not only about health care, but about politics, about education, about the environment, that we need to stop being such sheep. And it's really simple to just advocate your authority, say, I don't have time to mess with that, I'm too busy, and I'm just going to trust the pediatrician, I'm sure they know what to do. And then you, parents, end up with a lifetime of disasters. And I know with the the economy the way it is, and, and both parents are working, and kids, you have three kids, and they're in all kinds of 
soccer and sports and music lessons and all this other stuff, it's like, how do I find time to do this too? Well, you can. I mean, spend a little bit of time. Like I said, my DVDs and books have done most of the work for you. You don't have to spend 11,000 hours like I did. It's all done. It's like food fed. All you have to do is, is set aside a couple of hours and you can get it. You know? Yep. Pop it in your DVD player and you're good to go. I'm going to go ahead and take another exactly. call here. Um, sure. Caller from the uh, 504. Caller, are you there? My switchboard is uh, yeah. There you go. Caller, are you there? Hi. Hi. Thanks for calling in to Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi. Um, my name is Tricia. I'm actually calling from Mandeville, Louisiana, just north of New Orleans. And uh-huh. uh, you Trisha. somewhat answered. I'm sorry? Yeah. You just said hello. <laughs> Uh, you've somewhat answered, actually, uh, when I pressed into, into the queue, um, the question right before. Um, uh, we vaccinated, believe it or not, I have three children, and my oldest is 10 and pretty much completely vaccinated. My second um, is six and has due, as the doctors say, on, on a year or two, and I have a three-year-old daughter. My uh, my daughter is the least vaccinated. My husband is a complete fan of yours, and I'm tr- coming on board slowly but surely with all of this. We're having uh-huh. issues with schools, of course. You know, we're needing to find the the papers. Um, but I, I guess I'm trying to find a doctor. We just moved to this area, and they look at you or like you're absolutely nuts, um, and ask them why in the heck would you not want to vaccinate and is there a website that you could go to, to, to for any type of, you know, groups of doctors that that also share the same belief of no vaccination so that you don't feel like you're the odd man out? Well, there are. There are two vac- there are two websites that have a fair amount. Now, they don't have every doctor listed, number one. And number two, they don't may not find somebody right in your immediate area. But Dr. Sears, mm-hmm. who wrote, actually wrote the vaccine book, Dr. Sears' website has a fairly comprehensive list of what he calls vaccine-friendly doctors. So even though okay. they may vaccinate, they're willing to work with parents who don't who want to vaccinate selectively or not at all. And then if you go to the, medic, the um, International Medical Council on Vaccination, which is in, I am if I can never it just go to, uh, I can never remember the initials. If you could just go to medicalvoices.org, it will get you there. Medicalvoices.org will go to the same okay. site. And in the, on that site, there's about 150 doctors and practitioners who are very much in line with what I say about vaccination. And so that's another source of where you can go and find doctors in your area. But I always tell parents, why do you think you need a doctor? What you need is a healthcare provider. You can go to a naturopath. You can go to a pediatric chiropractor. You can find a nurse in your church or in your parish who can look in the kid's ears or can look at at your child with a fever if you're not sure and say, tell you whether or not this is to become something to be concerned about or not. It's the mentality, to be honest with you, that you grew up with, you know, just thinking that you had to have a doctor and you thought being the best parent you could be was was to follow what the, the the pediatricians tell you, so we're we're and slowly it's learning. Time that we need to, and it's time we need to change that paradigm. I spoke at the Holistic Moms Association meeting a couple of years ago, and I sat at a luncheon table with like 20 moms, and I said, you know, I have to ask you guys something. You know, what makes you think you need a pediatrician? And they all just kind of looked at each other, and one gal finally said, well, I don't know. I guess it's because what everybody else does. I said, that's exactly right. And if everybody jumped right. off the roof, would that be what you thought you needed to do too? 
it's time for sure. you to for us to take a little bit of responsibility, read a couple of books, find some people that because what you really need is somebody to that if you're not a healthcare provider, if you're a mom who's a CPA and you don't know anything about health, you need to read a little bit of books and, and get some information about fever and about what to, what to do and under things. There's a lot of good books out there. And then you just need to have like a healthcare consultant, somebody that is in the business that can look at your child and say, you know, this looks this looks like a they got a booboo on their leg and they go, oh, this does look kind of bad. Like this looks like it needs an antibiotic. So you need a consultant that you can help you with. And I think that parents know, moms know, dads know, they know when their kids are sick or not. They know. Sure. Well, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your for your input. And uh, I'm trying to get other people on board. It's very, very difficult. It is difficult. It is. And here's a, here's a, here's a step with that. And this is something that has kept me involved in this all these years without getting coming off as like the angry person. And it's because I really feel like my job is to be like Joanna Appleseed. My job is just to throw those seeds out there. I take no ownership and I don't try to con- in, in making them sprout. I take no ownership in convincing anybody to change their mind. What my job is and what, perhaps what your role is is just to give people the information. You don't know where the seeds are going to sprout and you don't know when. You might send it out there today and they might think you're crazy, but two years from now they might go, you know that stuff you told me, that stuck with me all this time and I think I'm ready to look into it now. Well, I really appreciate your help. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. That's a great question. Yeah, it's tough, you know. I mean, when when all your friends and family, they're like, no, vaccination, vaccination, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely tough, but it's all about just educating yourself and, you know, some of the best ideas are, are really denied or, you know, refuted right in the beginning and then people come around. So um, let me go ahead and ask some more Facebook questions here. This is from Sean. He wants to know, is there any research that proves vac- vaccines work? No. <laughs> no. Because it's one of the false premises about vaccines is that um, if you they, – they make the assumption that everyone will be exposed, which really isn't true. And they make the assumption that everyone who is exposed will get sick, which we know that's not truth either. Uh, the truth either, because you can have a whole classroom full of, of kids, and we've got a few that have got the cold and the flu. Not everybody gets it. Got a flu that has a few that get strep throat or mono. Not everybody gets it. So just because you're exposed doesn't mean you'll get sick. And then the vaccine industry would say, except of course, if you're vaccinated, you won't get sick. And we also know that many people who get the flu shot still get the flu. And we know of outbreaks like a couple of years ago, that outbreak in, in uh, Iowa about the mumps, that 68% of those kids had had two mumps vaccines, and they got the mumps anyways. We see these outbreaks of pertussis, and when they actually look at it, most of those kids have, had, have been vaccinated against pertussis. And so we know that you can get the vaccine and still get sick. And so if you don't, if you are exposed, and you are vaccinated, would it be because that you didn't get sick because of the vaccine, or would you have been healthy enough to have not gotten the disease anyways? That's mm-hmm. the, that's the cornerstone question. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, and this question is from Andrew. He wants to know, if sanitation, not vaccination, is a cause for reduced vaccinated disease rates in the U.S., why are vaccinated disease rates higher in developed countries like Japan and Sweden which correspondingly have lower vaccination rates. I didn't quite get that. Read that again a little bit slower. Okay. (laughs) 
If sanitation, not vaccination, is a cause for reduced vaccinated disease rates in the U.S., why are vaccinated disease rates higher in developed countries like Japan and Sweden, which correspondingly have lower vaccination rates? There's no proof that they have lower vaccination rates in Japan and Sweden. In fact, Sweden and Finland are two countries that are where a lot of the pharmaceutical industry actually does their does their uh, studies in those countries. That they have very high vaccination rates, and the same is true for Japan. So, I don't know that I, des- I necessarily agree with that premise. Hmm. Okay, got it. Let's see here. Going down the line, there's so many. I'm trying to decide which one to take. Um, <laughs> let's see here. I think you already answered that one. This is from Dr. McCrary. She wants to know, can Hib and DTaP be given at the same time? I've heard conflicting ideas and would love to know your thoughts. Well, according to the vaccine industry, they say that you can give any combination of anything all together at any given time, whether the kid's on antibiotics, has a fever or not. They call it capture. If they're in front of you, that's, what, that's actually what's written in the medical literature. They call it capture. As long as it, if a child's in front of you and you've got an opportunity to vaccinate, don't miss it. And so, um, you know, some of the combination vaccines have like, you know, like Pediorix that has DPT and polio and hepatitis B in it. And so, excuse me, and outside of the country, they have different combinations of things together. So I don't know specifically about HIB and, and, and DPT together. My thought is that according to the industry, they say that you can give anything at any given time. So I don't know of any opposition to that. But... Um, that's the extent of my knowledge on that one. Okay. Now, for those parents who are listening and they're thinking, okay, I'm still going to get my child vaccinated, that I know, what what is a healthier way that you could recommend that they could go about doing that than what's generally recommended and done? Well, first of all, I think you need to really, you know, the vaccination is no respecter of age, which I, you know, I mean, I have I testified for and written papers for and done chart reviews for vaccine-injured adults. So a lot of times parents think, well, if I just wait till they're older, it will be safe. That's not true. It may be a little safer, but it's not definitely not safe. So I think that one of the things that if you're going to do it anyways is to make sure you do one at a time, wait at least a month or two in between, um, wait, put it off as long as you possibly can, wait until they're three, four, five, six years of age before you start. Um, in my book, I, uh, Saying No to Vaccines, that there's, a, there's a, a loosely written protocol in the back of the book about using vitamin C and vitamin A because vitamin C is a great antioxidant mop and vitamin A is a great antiviral. That I use a little protocol in there about using vitamin C and vitamin A three days before the vaccine, on the day of the vaccine, and three days afterwards to try to mitigate some of the reactions and the side effects. That's not been scientifically proven. There's no studies. There's no. There's there's nothing in ter- terms of publications. But it is a way to help support the immune system when they are getting the onslaught of the of the chemicals and things that are in the vaccines. So to sum that up, it's one at a time. Put it off as long as you possibly can. Um, maybe do vitamin C and vitamin A before, during, and after vaccination. And after you've done one or two shots, you may want to get a blood test called a titer test to see if you need any more because it's absolutely proven in the medical literature that we do this three- and five-shot series just to make sure that everybody has has an antibody, which is another whole topic in and of itself. And if you've got something called a protective antibody, which is what the industry calls it, then you really don't need any more shots. 
And some kids get plenty enough protective antibody after just the first or the second vaccine. You may not need the third, fourth, and fifth one. So those are some those are some options. But I really encourage parents to really do a little homework and looking at the infection versus the risk of the vaccination. These infections, these normal childhood diseases come and go in the vast, vast majority of children. They come and go in a week or two at a time, and then they're gone. And if it's a viral illness, they've got pretty much lifetime immunity. But a vaccine injury can be a travesty for a lifetime. And so parents, you know, when, when you have a child, there's nothing that comes with a guarantee. Nothing. I mean, they don't come out. They don't. They, they don't come out to shoot with a with a user's guide stapled to their butt. You know. <laughs> and and you and you've got you've got all kinds of decisions that you have to make as a parent, and nothing is a hundred percent ever, ever. And so you need to weigh the risks. I mean, do you put your kids on a bicycle with or without a helmet? Do you put them in a in a car seat with or without a seat belt? I mean, do you feed the kinds of food that you feed them? Make them go into bed on time, making them get adequate amounts of exercise and water and rest. These are all decisions that you make as how you're going to raise your child. But when you look at the vaccines and you look at an illness that can come and go, I have a lot of control over what, whether my child even gets sick, vitamin D, nutrition, sleep, washing their hands, et cetera. I have control over that. A vaccine... I have zero control over the outcome of what happens once that is injected in my child. None. I have zero control over it. And it could be something that could harm them for life over a condition that could come and go. And when parents get down to the bottom line of that and start to really look at it, then I think they they can have a little bit of a paradigm shift of this way that we've been having this all this information sort of crammed down our throats for generations now. Mm-hmm. Yep. This question is from Rebecca. She wants to know, she said, I've heard that for polio and tetanus, there aren't any cures if you get them. What's your opinion on whether it's worth it to vaccinate since there aren't any cures? And if you make that choice, what precautions should be taken? Well, the truth is about polio is that more than 98% of people who are actually exposed to a a polio virus, it it looks like a gastroenteritis. It looks like a viral illness with vomiting and mostly diarrhea, and it passes right straight through the GI tract, and, um, and, and you get lifetime immunity. In about 1.5%, you get some transient paralysis and numbness, and in 0.02% of people who actually contract the disease end up with paralysis. Polio and paralysis are not synonyms. They're not. Mm-hmm. And so that is a, that's, that's, that's the, the upshot about polio. The other thing is that the, polio, that the Western Hemisphere the Western Hemisphere, North, South America, Central America, has been declared polio-free since 1994. It's amazing to me that we still give kids five polio shots in this country, which all contain formaldehyde or 2-phenoxyethanol, and formaldehyde has now been considered to be a, a true carcinogen. So polio vaccines in this country, I, I don't understand why we still give them and why we give so many of them. In terms of tetanus, tetanus is a terrible disease. Nobody wants to get it. But, 60, but by the CDC's own data, 16% of people who contract full-blown tetanus, 16% have had four or more tetanus shots. So sometimes when you get a tetanus shot, you have like this false sense of security that, oh, I've got a tetanus shot, and you just sort of blow it off, or, rather than really doing good wound hygiene. And tetanus is a terrible infection. It is recoverable. It is not uniformly fatal. Yes, some people can die from it, like they can die from a lot of other things. 
but it is not uniformly fatal. So polio does not equal paralysis, and tetanus does not uniformly cause death. And I think that that, and it doesn't happen suddenly either. I mean, if you step on a, on a, a dirty uh, a, a nail or, or you get, get a cut, um, it does, it's not like you got a dirty cut and tomorrow you're going to have full-blown tetanus and you could die. I mean, tetanus takes anywhere from 7 to 21 days for it to, de- to develop and evolve. There's symptoms of numbness and tingling and other things that you can do in the meantime. There's even an antibiotic called clindamycin that can actually treat dirty wounds. So parents have some time. You have some time. It's not a big urgency if your child gets a cut. And if you get a cut, wash it out really well with warm, soapy water, pour lots of hydrogen peroxide on it, and use a lot of neosporin. If you have an opportunity to let it bleed for a few minutes, let it bleed because that washes out the wound. So that gives you some some leeway of some things to make a decision. Mm -hmm. All right. This is from Anita. And she said, my granddaughter developed a blood platelet problem immediately following the MMR. She's trouble clotting now, and my son believes it was the shot. Um, we're wondering if she will always have the problem that there's a chance she could get better. What are your thoughts? Um, I believe that MMR is one of the things that, that has been in the medical literature reported to cause um, blood, blood dyscrasias, is what she's describing. <clears throat> if she mm-hmm. really believes it's a shot, she needs to file a VAERS report with a vaccine adverse event reporting system. And if she's got a very serious problem, she may need to file a vaccine injury compensation claim with a vaccine attorney, which you can find a list of those on the nvic.org website. So those are some things that you need to do. In terms of will she have it forever, you don't really know. But if she can clean up her immune system, like we talked about with the other caller, about doing things like lots of vitamin C and vitamin A, um, taking care of her intestinal tract, getting herself to be as healthy as she can in terms of cleaning out the blood dyscrasias with good food and nutrition and vitamin C and A and maybe some homeopathy, she may be able to recover from that. Okay, great. I think I have like three more questions and then I can let you go. So this question is from Abby and she wants to know, do vaccines have any correlation with febrile seizures? Um, you know, in some cases, I believe that they do. I mean, they definitely have <coughs> correlations with um, non-febrile seizures. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but the fact that um, febrile seizures occur because the temperature goes up quickly, at least that's the theory, and we know in when almost 100% of the package inserts from almost all of the vaccines, it mentions as a side, as a side effect of the vaccines can be fever. So if a child has a tendency towards febrile seizures, in my opinion, I think that the vaccines, if they cause a fever, could possibly be associated with that. Okay. And then this is from Ryan. Can vaccines change our genes? Yes, definitely. Because we know that some of the stray viruses that are in the vaccines, like the avian viruses, the bovine viruses, all of those can be incorporated into our DNA by a process called transfession. And that means that once it's been incorporated into our DNA, there's no way to measure that. And so I do believe that that is something that can, that can happen, and it's more than just a theoretical construct. I believe that there are things that, that, are, that we're actually seeing that now and kind of going in that direction. So, um, yeah, we're kind of manipulating things that we should leave alone and, leave, <laughs> and work with Mother Nature instead of trying to fight against it. Exactly. This is from Leela, and she said, I have full, I have fully vaccinated my eight- and four-year-old until two years ago. My oldest has had two of the chickenpox shots. 
and the younger one just the one. Are they at risk for developing chickenpox when they get older? How long is the shot good for? And is there any risk for them getting shingles when exposed to the virus? Wow, great question. It comes up a lot about chickenpox. Um, the chickenpox vaccine has a notorious failure rate. Um, it's, it's When you get it at one or two years of age, that's why they started advocating boosters at five years of age because the vast majority of those kids that developed antibodies from the chickenpox vaccine, it, they went away within two years. But getting the vaccine takes on all the risk of the shot, and 3% of the kids, it's been shown in, in the medical literature, that 3% of children that get the uh, chickenpox vaccine develop shingles from it. And, and you can shed. It's one of those live virus vaccines that can be shed, and, and, and the virus can be shed to other people. There is an increased risk. It's been known in the medical literature forever that if you don't have natural chickenpox as a child, you have an increased risk of a more serious type of an infection as an adult. <clears throat> However, because of the vaccine, there's not as much virus out there in circulation. I mean, how many parents try to find chickenpox parties these days? It's not out there. Um, we have eliminated the virus with that vaccine, but the trade-off has been a travesty. And it's been a travesty because of, of all the, the problems that are going to be developing down the road. In fact, Gary Goldman wrote the book about the chickenpox vaccine travesty, and he was a researcher at the CDC. And he actually saw that what was going to be happening was that by eliminating the, in this virus from circulation, people that are 50 years of age and older that had chickenpox when they were a child their immunity, their long-term lifetime immunity would begin to wane because what kept their immunity strong was that as their children and grandchildren contracted chickenpox, they would get a, a, a booster. They would get like an, an external booster to their immune system to recharge up their lifetime immunity. Without having that out there in circulation now, as the older population's um, immunity to chickenpox wanes, they actually anticipate 50 million adults contracting shingles. And because of that, we've already started seeing in the medical literature reports of increasing hospitalizations and increasing expenses because people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s that are having horrible cases of shingles for which they are being hospitalized driving up costs. And now what have we done instead? Now we've created a shingles vaccine. So now we're creating vaccines to be given to adults for problems caused by vaccines given to children. It's just kind of like, when's it going to stop? There's 330 vaccines in development right now, 330, and 96 of them are in stage three clinical trials. Some are for cancer, they're like for heroin addiction, they're for manipulation of the brain cells. I mean, the list is endless. So for parents listening to this who think, oh, my kids are a little bit older, thank God I don't have to make any more of those decisions, it's simply not true because there's more than 20 vaccines that are going to be targeted towards adolescents and adults in the next couple of years because it's the, it's the buoyancy underneath the pharmaceutical industry. So people need to get involved. They need to go to nvicadvocacy.org. You need to ensure your right to refuse. You need to get involved with the Canary Party that's taking on the medical industrial complex and all of these issues where they are taking away our right to choose. And people need to get involved or, you know, we get the government we deserve. If we're going to be complacent and not want to be participatory, then we're going to get what we what we get, I guess. Mm -hmm. Last question, Dr. Tenpenny, um, about Hep B and, and newborns. Can you speak a little bit about why hospitals are 
pushing that on newborns and just your perspective on all of that with heavy. It's the most worthless vaccine like ever, ever, <laughs> ever, and particularly for newborns. And when they decided to start giving hepatitis B to newborns in 1991 is when the autism spike started to, started to rise. They gave hepatitis B in the HIV in 1991, and it started to go up. When they, when they stopped giving the hepatitis B at birth, you saw that peak start to curve off a little bit, but then they reinstituted it again at birth. Um, when the original research came out about the hepatitis, given hepatitis B at birth, they decided to do it in this country because hepatitis B is a very common infection in women in Southeast Asia. And so they decided that it was a good thing to do here. And when the congressional committees challenged them about it back in 1991 to show the research where it showed that given hepatitis B to newborns was safe, they, the industry said, I'm sorry, we don't have that research. We tested this vaccine on 5- and 10-year-olds. So if you don't do anything else, if you're going to vaccinate anyways, if you just believe in vaccines and you can't get past your fear, the number one thing that you need to not do and not allow is for your child to have that hepatitis B vaccine at birth. Wow. And, it's, and how many children are getting this? How many babies are getting this right out of the hospital? 77,000? Well, probably, probably most of them. And on any given year, there are about 4 million live births per year. So a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. Wow, it's so much information. I'll have to listen to this interview again myself. <laughs> so I'm not managing the switchboard. <laughs> I can actually really listen to what you're saying. Um, Dr. Tenpenny, do you have anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners before I let you go? Well, just if anybody has any more questions, you know, a couple things. You know, if you go to the website, which is drtenpenny.com, D-R-T-E-N-P like Paul, E-N-N-Y, tenpenny.com, there's a lot of free information there, a lot of free articles, a lot of things that are posted there. Um, my DVDs, I'd appreciate your support. I mean, that's how um, I pay my employees and was able to move forward to create new information. We're coming out with a, a new DVD that's going to be coming out probably in October about uh, called Pregnancy, Moms, and Newborns. <laughs> and what we do with Rogam and what we're now talking about vaccinating pregnant moms and the types of shots and the things that we're doing to children right after they're born, that will be coming out probably in October. Um, the book, Saying No to Vaccines, Refuting the 25 Most Common Reasons You Should Vaccinate. If people look at that book, the, the best way to use that book is to skim down the table of contents and pick out the arguments that, that you really think, well, I won't, that, that, you, that people are coming at you about, and just pick them out. You need, of course, you can read the book cover to cover. It's like 350 pages, but it isn't necessarily intended to be that way. It's meant to be a manual so that you can look up specific information and specific references. Um, come join me on Facebook, you know, facebook.com forward slash vaccine info. We do have rules on the walls that we enforce. Um, it's not for trolls. It's for healthy discussions about uh, problems associated with vaccines. If you want a pro-vaccine com conversation, you can go find it elsewhere. <laughs> so, so we really guard our territory pretty carefully, and that's why it's such a great space because um, – as most of you know that have been standing up against vaccines and standing for vaccine truth for a long time, out there in the general world it can get to be, you can get kind of beat up. So we've created this safe place on our wall where people can come together as, as a kind of a community of like-mindedness so that you can feel like, huh, I'm around a bunch of people that have the same sort of beliefs that I do. And I think that's really supportive for a lot of people. Absolutely. Dr. Tenpenny, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
You're welcome. Thanks so much. So now are you going to have a link for this posted somewhere? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, Dr. Low Radio. It's on blogtalkradio.com slash Dr. Low Radio. And then on my website, um, drlaurennoel.com. It's all the previous shows are on there. So, And I can send you a downloaded copy of it as well. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for Perfect. having me. I got to chat. I got to yak a lot here. This was really fun. <laughs> well, we enjoyed all of it. So thanks again. All right. You take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, don't feel pressured by your doctor. Do your own research. Find a doctor who will work with you and listen to your concerns about this topic. Um, obviously, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of conflicting information, so do your own research. Some of the websites that Dr. Tenpenny mentioned was um, nvicadvocacy.org. That's nvicadvocacy.org. Also, vaccinationcouncil.org. And then to, to weigh the pros and cons, it's a good website I came across. It's called smartvax.com. That's smartvax.com. And if you do decide you want to still vaccinate, find a doctor who will work with doing an individualized schedule and staggering the schedules for you. And uh, so find a pediatrician and a naturopathic doctor who will work with that. To find a naturopathic doctor in your area, check out naturopathic.org. That's N-A-T-U-R-O. P-A-T-H-I-C.org. You can put in your zip code and find a licensed naturopathic doctor in your area. They're um, very qualified in this area to be able to guide you and give you some uh, some advice. Thanks a lot for the callers, Tricia and Lisa. Thanks for all of the Facebook questions. I would say all your names, but it's too many of you. Um, tune in next week on heart disease and naturopathic medicine. That will be on August 1st. That's on Monday of next week. Um, thanks so much for all your support, you guys. You guys have a great week. Talk to you soon. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Want entertainment designed just for you? Then check out customizable streaming TV from Xfinity. It makes your life simple, easy, awesome. Xfinity gives you customizable streaming TV options. Enjoy the most free shows anywhere on any device and even access your streaming apps right on your TV with X1. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.